You ever heard such sweet words? For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are overwhelmed within us at your grace. Oh, God, that you love us so at such a great cost have given us endless life. And until our faith becomes sight, O God, you will hold us fast. It is good to be here, Lord. It is good to be with God's people. It is good to gather around your word, sing the songs of Zion, to hear the truth from our eternal God, who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so we praise you and ask you to open up our hearts that we might be willing, O oh God, to apply your truth to our lives and allow you to change us and shape us and transform us until Christ is formed in us, O oh God. I pray. Amen. And amen. Well, quite a weekend stateside, yes? You know what struck me? Is the phenomenon that the protest was bigger than the celebration. It strikes me that we live in a world that is characterized by that. There is so much brokenness, so much pain, so much suffering, so much hatred, so much injustice. That the protests of our pain and our cries are far more numerous than the celebrations of our hearts. There's a problem, though, with the giant gatherings of human, right act, human rights activism. And that is that they are such a mixture of what is right and what is wrong what is true and what are lies, as I um, watched the proceedings of this weekend and watched the giant gatherings of thousands and thousands of women in Washington and other places in the world, other cities in the U.S., and I watched um, the theme, of course, was justice. Justice. We want what's right. Played out before us was the kind of epitome of postmodernism, the meta-narratives where there's all kinds of little stories coming together, your story and my story. And Somehow the idea in postmodernism that we can put all a pool, all of our stories together and come up with one theme that makes sense. 
It never does. Because when we are fueled by the flesh and our human rights activism is the ideas of the human mind, we fall far short of the justice of God. Because in all of these marches for justice, by the way, it, it demonstrates to all of us that there is a God in heaven because human beings cry out for the very things that represent the image of God. God is a God of justice. And so when human beings cry out for justice, we are crying out for God. We are crying out from the depths of who we really are for the very things that God has made us, justice. But there wasn't justice for everybody yesterday in those marches. Where was the justice for the unborn? Where is the justice for the persecuted church? Where is the justice that, that tells people they can stay in their sins and go to hell? Where is their justice in that? It wasn't a march for justice. It was just the failings of human rights activism. Moses was among the first human rights activists that we have recorded in the scriptures. From the depths of his soul, he was crying out for justice as well. But in the section of scripture that we're going to look at today, he suffered from the same problem as those who marched yesterday, or most of them, is that they marched on their own ideals. Justice as defined by them. It's interesting that even the secular philosophers are making statements about the impossibility of having true justice, true judgment without God. It was quite remarkable in uh, a book that Pastor Ken and Judy gave me for Christmas, Making Sense of God by Timothy Keller, that he quotes a professor from Harvard by the name of Michael Sandel, and this is an unbelievable concession. In his book, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, written in 2009, Michael Sandel, Sandel Harvard political philosopher, writes this, all notions of justice are inescapably judgmental. The idea that we should not bring moral or religious convictions to bear on public discussions about justice, listen, is frankly impossible. Wow. We believe that all along. That, that's what we proclaim. That's what we teach. Our postmodern world thinks that we can jettison God and come up with justice. It's impossible. And so I've change the title of our study today in your study books it's called seeking justice but i've added to it because you can't have justice without god i've i'm calling it seeking justice finding god because that's what happened in moses life moses like so many in the world around us wanted to do something right even right by god i would suspect but before anything meaningful can be done for God, 
God first has to do something major in us. I like how D.L. Moody put it in his description of Moses. He says this, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was a somebody. He spent the second 40 years learning he was a nobody. And he spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. I like that. And while Moses had a long life of 120 years, and you might not be able to divide your life into three 40s, each one of us in here today is in one of those three quadrants. We either think we're a somebody, or we're finding out that we're a nobody, or I'm hoping we're finding out what God can do with nobodies. Somewhere in those three is you this morning. And I believe from the text here today, we've got something to say. God's got something to say to you, whichever quadrant you're in, because this is an interesting couple of stories in, that are strategically placed by the providence of God and His Word, by the purposes of God and His Word that, that um, must be dealt with before Moses can be commissioned uh, to follow and lead in the great purposes of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you please open this morning to Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, we're looking at uh, verses 11 through 25 this morning. By the way, um, regularly in stories like this, it requires a certain amount of sanctified imagination to read, read between the lines. But the nice thing about this particular Moses story is I don't really have to draw on too much sanctified imagination. Because the writer of Acts, Dr. Luke, in Acts chapter 7, verses 20 to 29, gives us a divine interpretation of between the lines, which is far better than any sanctified imagination that I can bring to you. So I'll be borrowing some insights that the Holy Spirit gave Stephen just before he was persecuted and slaughtered and went to heaven. So I'll, I'll bounce around a little bit back and forth and, and I'll, I'll tell you when I'm, coming, when I'm grabbing something out of Acts, hopefully I'll remember, and when I'm taking it from Exodus. But suffice it to say, it was not a good time to be a Jew. The Egyptian economy was dependent on Jewish slave labor. You can pick that up in chapter 1, verse 10. However... The Jews were becoming incredibly numerous and the king of Egypt was becoming unsettled by the idea that the, the Jews might band together and form a revolt and, or, or band with their enemies and ultimately uh, cause great grief in Egypt. And so there was an edict that went out that it was necessary to call the nation of Israel. And so the edict that went out was to destroy all the male babies for a time. They had conveniently forgotten the outstanding leadership of one of the great Jewish leaders named Joseph, who had saved the nation of Egypt through the wisdom of God that was granted him. They conveniently forgot his great leadership. And so this extermination edict went forward. Providentially, though, little Moses was preserved. We know, of course, because we've read the story and 
we know it was for the purposes of God. So this little basket case Jewish baby ends up raised in a royal palace, in the royal palace of Egypt. It's an amazing thing of God's will being demonstrated for us and displayed for us. So we join the story in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2, and it says there, one day after Moses had grown up. I want to stop there for a moment. Because Acts tells us, or Stephen tells us in the record of Acts that he was 40 years old. So just so you know out there that uh, the Bible declares that you're not grown up until you're 40. I'd like to put that out there for those of you because now I'm so far past 40. I enjoy the fact of all you who are under 40 who think you're so hot and all that, (laughs) that you're not grown up yet. You ought to listen to your sages and your seniors. So he was all grown up. He's 40 years of age. And it says in, uh, in Acts that um, Acts verse 19, or Acts, sorry, Acts verse 22, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. These are interesting insights into this story that we're going to say. I'm not just giving them to you as interest, but to build the case of what we've got going on here. Uh, It's necessary to know the backdrop. And in fact, um, we find this statement of educated in all the wisdom of Egypt is no small thing. In fact, it's really code for saying that Moses was brilliant. Uh, educated in all the wisdom of Egypt meant that he was enrolled in the, the temple of the sun, or the temple, yeah, the temple of the sun, which was the Oxford of the ancient Near East of the day. He was educated in the finest of all intellectualism, in the maths and in the sciences, in medicine, in, in, in astronomy. He was educated in strategic warfare and leadership. Moses was no simple shepherd from a backwater village. And this is important for us to understand. Because we know when we understand that Moses was the author through the power and presence and inspiration of the Spirit of God, was the author of the first five books of the Bible. And we hear these arrogant professors in the contemporary universities treating with smugness the record of creation. We need to understand that Moses wasn't some dummy who was pressured by the religion of his time to write this record of a God who created. Rather, Moses knew of all the alternative ideas of science and math and formation and astronomy. He knew of all the alternatives out there in the ancient Near East. And he became persuaded of the truth of the greatness of the one God who called and spoke the universe into existence in six literal days. This is what Moses wrote. An educated man. I would submit to you based on the fallenness of our minds over all these years, more intelligent than any professor any of you will face in all of your life. Moses was a smart man. Not only that, it says he was persuasive in speech, which means, or or, uh, 
powerful in speech, which means he was very persuasive. The kind who could sway a crowd. It's interesting because later when God taps him on the shoulder for a call and a commission, he says, I, I, I've never been any good at speaking. Moses. But you know what that tells us something about Moses? He once thought he was a somebody. But by the time God tapped him on the shoulder, he thought he was a nobody. That's a good thing. It says he was powerful in action. Moses was an activist. So it shouldn't surprise us that he tried to rally a justice event. The problem is he was zealous to do the image of God thing before he really knew the God of the image. And he winds up doing things very badly. So let's join the story in Exodus. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. By the way, the word, same word is used for beating and killed and hitting later on. It's deadly force that may cause death. That's important, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that tonight because just don't have time this morning. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to to water their father's flock. Some shepherd bullies came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, or better known to most of you as Jethro, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of God to us this morning. On your way to righting wrongs in this world, 
you may want to ready yourself for some serious delays and detours along the way. And I'll give you five reasons from this text why that's likely to be the case. The first is this. As we study the incidents here and transfer it to our lives, you may have the will of God right, but be sadly deficient in the ways of God. You may have the will of God right, but may be sadly deficient in the ways of God. Where do we see this? In Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Stephen, in recording uh, or, or giving us an illustration or um, explanation of Moses' life, writes it this way, he, Moses, decided to visit. He, Moses, decided to visit his people. In the text here in verse 11, it says, he went out and watched them. It seems to us that the emphasis here is that this is Moses' mission, first and foremost. He was taking matters into his own hands to avenge, and in a New York emotional minute, his choice to right this wrong... His way, from all appearances, tanks his career. How do we know that? Well, he went from privilege, being the prince of Egypt. He was raised by the princess. He goes from privilege to being a wanted fugitive to being an exile in wilderness, sitting beside a well in an obscure place. Assuming that God was done with him. Too many of us, like Moses it would seem, tend to think that the starting line is the finishing line. We've come to know God and we know all, we've come to know all that we need about God. Now it's up to us to manage our lives, to pull us up and move us forward. And by the flesh we go out and seek justice for God. Armed with our flesh, we barge our way in to do the will of God, but not necessarily in the way of God. Here's our problem. We don't rightly understand the nature of discipleship or what Jesus is calling us to when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me as disciples. We, we don't understand the, the, the nature of that. Discipleship is more than, being, more than being right. It is doing what is right. That's why we exert so much energy here about application. And in fact, um, Moses was later to, to be given a seminar on discipleship by this same father-in-law, Jethro, who become his father-in-law, this same Jethro in Exodus chapter 18, which I'm going to talk to you about next week, Lord willing. But in this particular chapter, Jethro says something very strategic to him in Exodus 18 verse 20. He tells him, Moses, here's your responsibility. Go and teach the people the, the, the decrees and laws of God. But he doesn't stop there. And he says this to him, and show them the way to live. Wow, that's it. That's discipleship. It's knowing the will of God, knowing the word of God, knowing what is right, but also knowing how to live what is right. Being shown how to live what is right. Because zeal that's unprepared is a raging fire. Moses was all zealous for the justice of God. 
I've got to take care of these, the injustice that I see around him. He was trying to mobilize a great march and go to Washington. But he was full of zeal. The open door was there. He was overly zealous, and he created a disaster for himself. How do we interpret what he's doing here? You know that you might not be on a God mission when you're glancing to the left and glancing to the right to see if anybody's seen what you're doing. It might not be a God mission. So Moses is glancing to the left, Moses is glancing to the right, but Moses is not glancing. Come on, don't be afraid. Fear not. Up, not glancing up. Never mentioned that he glances up. You might not be on a God mission when you take the work that you allegedly have done for God and bury it. He kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. The wind has a way of blowing over our evil deeds and blowing the sand off until the toes stick out and our things we thought we could hide become apparent to others. Secondly, you may be, it may be the right thing, but not the right time. For those of you who've read the story of the Exodus, Egypt was on God's radar. In the purposes of God before the creation of the universe, judgment was already planned already scheduled. Moses is ahead of schedule. Head of God's timing. Done that. Anybody else ever done that? Ever run ahead of God? Ever been ahead of Him? It's not a good place to be. Because if it isn't God's way, and it isn't God's time, you aren't going to get God's help. That's not a good place to be. And so we have him running ahead of God, and he's not God, God's help. Many of us are like that hyper dog who gets walked past your house. You know the dog that I'm talking about? We, um, I was going to shock some of you, but I grew up with dogs. So you think I'm not a dog guy. I'm not a dog guy because I was raised with dogs. That's why I'm not presently a dog guy. But we had dogs. Oh, we had lots of dogs. We had this one German shepherd. It was crazy. It was a we should have known the day we picked it up. We, we picked up this cute little puppy, you know, a cute little puppy German Shepherd. They're really nice. We should have known when his father was trying to kill us that we maybe had a problem dog on our hands. But we disregarded all the signs and took this cute little puppy home. Well, this puppy grew up to be like his father. Surprise, surprise, the acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. Anyway, um, we were living in the outskirts of the city, and there was construction going on near our house, and this crazy German shepherd, he would break chains. We, we, we would put him on a chain, and we had to keep increasing the gauge of the chain because he would break chains to get off them. And he would run over to the construction site and steal things. He would bring back carpenter's apron, you know, carpenter's um, 
pouch with nails and hammer and all kinds of neat tools and drag them home to our house. He would drag saws and tools and everything. Finally, the guys over in the construction site got used to the fact that, that, that our dog would steal their stuff. They'd come to our house and say, hey, I lost a saw last night. You got it in your yard? Sure enough, yeah, yeah, there's a saw. Take, take your saw. We said to them, finally, we said to them, you know what? You better chain down the bulldozer over there because I think he's going to drag that thing home. But this dog was crazy. You couldn't walk it. It was, it was mad. It, it, we had to put a muzzle on because it would run after people. And, and it was all, one of those kind of dogs, you know, when you're on, it's going, <laughs> you know, you, there's, you see them walking by your, your yard. Usually they're really small dogs and they're, <laughs> and you're like, settle down, relax. That's how God sees us sometimes. We're just, we're just that dog at the end of a chain. Just like, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's the right thing, but not the right time. And um, it was the right plan, but not the right time, because Moses was not yet the right man. He was going to be, but he wasn't. Last week, we talked about David, who did not rush his coronation, remember? We all know about Christ, who didn't bypass the cross to get to the crown, or you and I wouldn't be here today. Now, Moses is forcing the exodus, and it's coming unglued everywhere. He had a just heart. His problem was he also had an independent heart. And God wants to put the slammer on that every time. Undeterred, he kills this Egyptian. Undeterred, he shows up the next day expecting that this uh, human rights march that he's planned is going to gather all kinds of momentum. There's going to be all kinds of Jews cheering for him. Yay, Moses! Moses, the liberator, deliverer! But we know that from the book of Acts because Stephen said that Moses thought that he was being called to be the deliverer of Egypt, but the people didn't understand. What to his horror as he arrived that day, instead of a, a gathering of people uh, gathered for this grand march out of Egypt, instead he, he finds that there's two Israelites who had become just like Egypt. One is treating his brother like a slave and beating him. Egypt had now gotten into the hearts of Israel and it broke his heart. And so he decides in his quest for justice that uh, he's going to address this brutal, oppressive treatment of his own people. And, and so he says to them, uh, stop hitting. Like, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? What are you thinking? Why are you hitting your fellow, your brother? Why? Why would you do that? And what's the response back to him? Who died and made you king? Who gave you the right to judge us? He's there to say, let's rally the troops for revolt and get out of Egypt. And all they can say is, what has qualified you, Moses, to be the judge? Remember last week I talked about that busload of critics that are just waiting down the road from every decision you make? That busload arrived. 
He had done things the wrong way, the wrong time, caught up with him. And so now he's got people who are not ready to follow him. See, thirdly, you, um, you are not, you're only ready to lead when you notice some are willing to follow. Listen, there's a great definition of leadership. If you want to understand that you're a leader or not, turn around. If nobody's following you, guess what? You're not a leader. And nobody was following Moses at this point. Now, he was quite stunned by this because he had all of the wisdom of Egypt. He had all of the training. He had the great resume. He was leader by default. He had all of the business principles. He's the one who should have been put in leadership. What's the deal? Sometimes your great resume may be your great problem. Moses thought he was ready for leadership, but as Chuck Swindoll put it in his book on Moses, you may find yourself highly qualified to be completely useless. That can be a really distressing realization. And so we find Moses there. They did not understand. They weren't ready to understand. A guy I like to listen to preach is named Jerry Gillis, uh, pastors of the chapel in Buffalo. I really like him. He's a good man of God. He, he mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was listening to him that um, there's a friend of his in ministry who who will only read dead guys' books. He'll only read dead guys' books. And, you know, I was listening to that, I was thinking, you know, that makes a lot of sense because the older I get, the dumber I realize I used to be. Anybody, anybody get there yet? The, the older I get, the dumber I realize I used to be. And, and it, always, it always bothers me that, that someone's been married 15 minutes and they write a book. It's like, you know what, I'm not reading a book by someone who's only been married 15 minutes. You, you can keep that book. Or I, I, these people who write parenting books and they've only raised their kids past public school. Anybody can raise their kids past public school. You raise your kids past high school, come and talk to me. You raise your kids past college, you come and talk to me. You raise your kids past marriage and on into their life and staying together and all that, you come, you come and talk to me. Then you should write a book about parenting. In fact, I, I don't think you should write a book about parenting or about, about marriage or anything until you're actually breathing about your last breath, your last gasp. It's like, God, give me, give me 15 more minutes to write my book, and then I can pass it on. I'm not reading anybody's book, and that's why, you know what? I, I like Moses. I like to read his book, his five books, because he was an old man by the time he wrote them. He's got some credibility. He has a great resume of life experience with God. There's a fourth, a fourth idea here because it's become very familiar to us now. The stories of God's great characters. Guess where they ultimately end up? You tell me. The. This is so discouraging. <laughs> Could you encourage me? Where, does peop, where do God's people mostly end up? The wilderness. Thank you, Joel. Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> Actually, I, don't, I never say Jordan to the girl. That's how I say it to the guy. Jordan. Thank you. They end up in the wilderness. And so we see Moses now is chased out into the wilderness. He, he kills an Egyptian. He tries to get, lead a human rights activist parade. Doesn't go. So now he's chased out into the wilderness. And we find him sitting beside a well 
in Nowheresville with nothing. Listen, he has no job. He has no wife. He has no prospects. He has no future. He has nothing. No children. He's just sitting beside a well wondering, is God done with me? This is just the start. This is just the beginning of where God is working him. Because fourthly, the self-life has to die before the Christ-formed life can live. For everybody. This is not just Moses, not just David. This is every single child of God. The self-life must die. That's why Jesus said, you must Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me in his definition of discipleship. The self-life has to settle down to give way to the humble life so an authentic God life can emerge. The rule is the same for everybody. The making of a man or a woman is the breaking of a man so that the broken man can become and have Christ made in him or her. So in summary, what happens here? From next in line to the throne in Egypt to sitting by an obscure well with no prospects. But watch this. There are signs of richness in his life. What does he do? He drives away some bullies from seven damsels in distress. That doesn't seem like such a big deal, but, but pay attention to this. Uh, Matthew Henry writes a really good line when he says, if you can't do the good you would, do the good you can. That's good. That ought to be tweeted this afternoon. Want me to say it again in case you want to tweet that thing? <laughs> if you can't do the good you would, do the good you can. That's another way of saying bloom where God plants you. And so in this suffering moment, in this failure moment, you know what it caused? It forced him to face humility. And humility always pushes us to obedience. We will not obey the Lord until we become humble. We will not. Not only that, um, but the daughters, you see, they go and tell their father, he rescued us. He provided for us. He shepherded your assets. What is that sounding like? That's sounding like a guy who's becoming useful to God. Wilderness teaches us to listen to God. In listening to God, we learn dependence. Because watch what happens next. The father says to the daughters, what, you left him there? Why wouldn't you bring him home to lunch? This is like a good guy. Bring him home to lunch. And it says there in verse 21, Moses agreed to stay. Now Moses, Moses has gone from the crown prince of Egypt to now a Bedouin campground for the rest of his life. So he thinks. But he's listening now to God. He's agreeing to stay. He's watering smelly animals and becoming a nomad camper. Now keep in mind that he could have had a Cleopatra-type wife. He settles for Twitterer. Say, say what? Yeah, that's what her name is, Twitterer. You see it as Zipporah, but I see it as Twitterer. If you translate that name, he marries Twitterer. 
I think that's an, a great new nickname for POTUS, Zipporah. You'll get that when you go home. <laughs> the Twitterer. And has a kid named Expulsion. Okay, these are not good days. These are days of wilderness and exile. And so he feels like he's at a dead end, done. But as C.S. Lewis rightly states, that obscurity doesn't teach us to think less about ourselves. It teaches us to think about ourselves less. That's critical for being on a mission where God is in, in the leadership. So in exile, he becomes a trafficker of help to the helpless. Perfect. Perfect for God's purposes. Moses gives way to humility. This is God's graduate school for all of us. None of us can escape this. When you are ready, because God has made you ready, and when God is ready, and when you finally have become convinced that you really are a nobody, and you finished congratulating yourselves at the Golden Globes and Emmy and Oscar Awards, when you finally fully belong to Christ, you're ready to lead a nation or a family or a workplace out of exile. Out of exile. But you have to come out first. Why would we think that this model would be any different for us when it is the model of our own Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ, the crown prince of heaven, descended from what he had to the wilderness of earth in obscurity. He condescended to clothe himself with human flesh and limitations because he loved us. Rejected by his own, he came to his creation and we did not recognize him. We rebelled against him and rejected him. He was publicly humiliated on a cross for our sakes that he might lead us out of exile. And now because he has followed the paradigm of the heavenly father, he has been exalted into heaven where it is scheduled that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the pattern. This is the template of how God functions in a life. When God's alarm clock sounds for you, and it will, heaven will move earth. But before you get to be in the hand of God, you have to learn how to hold it. Now, what do I see as we close here this morning? In verse 11 and 13, it says, He, Moses, went out to where his brothers were on his own initiative. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, I am sending you. Before wilderness, the question was posed in verse 14 
who made you ruler? In chapter 3, after wilderness, when they ask you who sent you, say this, I am has sent you. So what is good, brothers and sisters? What does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8. We know Moses is ready when in chapter 3, verse 11, God asks him to do an assignment and he says this, Who am I? He was all gung-ho for justice and leading human rights activism, all on his own strength. We see him 40 years later, and the only thing he can say is, who am I? Beloved, that's when God has you in the hollow of his hand and can lift you up and use you for his great purposes and his glory. So you might be sitting beside an obscure well because something bad has happened in your life. Is God done with you? Not in your life. It might be just the beginning of him finally taking your life and making it into what it ought to be for his glory. Our Father, I pray and thank you for justice. But we will never find justice and we can seek justice, but it will not be found until we find you, O oh God, and until you shape us. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's quite a contrast from last week to this week when we think about the difference between Moses at the moment he was at and David where he was at in the cave. Moses was firmly convinced that justice is hating your enemy. David saw it a different way. As a man after God's own heart, he realized that justice was offered by loving your enemy. We are not ready to be dispensers of God's justice until we have come to know the true justice of Christ, to love our enemies to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who persecute us, and to pray for those who despitefully use us. That's justice. Setbacks, beloved, are just setups for God to take and kill the self-life in us so that the Christ life might be fully formed in us. If you want to seek justice, you have to find the heart of Christ and then lead that march. Lead that march. That's justice. Our Father and our God, I pray and thank you for your truth which realigns our hearts and our actions that we might be truly servants of yours, people of justice. For if it isn't justice for all, it isn't justice at all. 
And the only one who can offer the world justice for all is the living God himself. And so, God, I pray that you might build in us hearts. We might be traffickers of justice, God's justice. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.